0: Hi everyone, it's Camilla here, Events Manager for Witherslack Group, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Sensational. With exam season fast approaching, we want to focus this episode on exam preparation, memory techniques and strategies for success. Now the thought of exams makes me recall past anxieties, and I'm sure it's the same for most people. But for a young person with neurodiversity, exams can add extra stress and additional challenges such as sensory overload and unclear questions and instructions. It may also be the first time for some students sitting in a hall alongside other students and that may feel odd and for some quite frightening. I'm joined today by Colin Foley, National Training Director for the ADHD Foundation a fantastic charity we've worked with for many years now on a number of events and webinars and also Chris Bonello, an autistic advocate, author and former teacher and award-winning, award-winning writer behind autisticnotweird.com. So welcome to the podcast. Would you both like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Colin, would you like to go first?
1: Well, hi, Carmilla. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to contribute to this uh, podcast. Uh, hi, Chris. Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, so I'm the National Training Director for the ADHD Foundation. We are the uh, largest patient-led ADHD neurodiversity charity in the whole of Europe. And it's my great pride to say that we're in the northwest of England, not down in the southeast. No disrespect to anyone listening to this who lives uh, in the southeast of England. Um, so my job um, is to lead the training team. And to create and uh, deliver training opportunities around neurodiversity and mental health uh, for whoever basically wants to talk about it. Um, my background is in education. I'm a 25-year uh, teaching career teaching uh, teenagers um, in five schools on uh, Merseyside. Uh, just just a quick point, Camilla, um, on what's what's happening nationally. What's very, very exciting about neurodiversity is that my job five years ago was probably exclusively with education providers. Now I spend 50% of my time talking to businesses and companies who are really getting on board with the neurodiverse agenda. And there's some great practice. So those of you out there listening, thinking my child's really struggling in school uh, at the moment, and I'm really worried about them, let me tell you that there is a lot of really exciting things happening um, outside of education, where don't think that my child's just because they've got a diagnosis of a neurodiverse condition is not going to be able to get a good job not going to be able to thrive not going to be able to be successful professionally things are really changing
0: Great, i know there's so much help out there now so so much better than a few years ago isn't it so that's Absolutely. great um how about you chris do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself
2: again thank you very much for having me on uh yeah my name's chris benelli for those who didn't catch that part i'm I'm an autistic advocate. In a previous life, I was a primary school teacher, but uh, then I I left teaching forever for the first time back in 2014, and then ended up uh, coming back. Well, I say ended up coming back. It was a, a conscious decision. I went back into a, a specialist education, <coughs> and up until I uh, left teaching forever a second time earlier this year, I was working in a special school specifically for autistic students, and so uh, that suited me really well. Uh, not just because I'm autistic as well and uh, with that comes kind of a a natural advantage in terms of relationship building and uh, shared empathy with the students and so on, but also because the flexibility that you find in in special education enables you to, well, in my experience, do uh, do the job more effectively in terms of managing student well-being. It's just so much uh, better than I felt able to do in mainstream. And, excuse me. And these days, I deliver teacher training, I uh, do keynote speeches at conferences, and I'm also a novelist as well, Uh, curiously enough. I've I've written a novel series called Underdogs, where the whole of Britain's been imprisoned in these giant walled cities, and they're under the watchful eye of a million-ish clone soldiers, and there are only 13 people free in the abandoned countryside trying uh, trying to fight back and... Uh, free the rest of the population and most of those people are teenagers who escaped an attack on their special school.
0: Right. Okay. So you've got
2: autistic heroes and dyslexic heroes and yeah. heroes of ADHD, PDA, Down syndrome, anxiety and, and so on and uh, they're the ones fighting to free the mainstream population. So there.
0: Oh okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: So yeah that's sounds really good Chris, sounds great. <laughs> yeah thank you.
0: You should both know a lot about um, the exam period then and 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 students preparing for exams and everything so um let's should we get started um first off can can you just explain the neuro, neurological memory in more detail and talk about the main challenges neurodiverse children face when, when preparing for exams
1: uh, right, Camilla. Uh, I mean, can I just make a point before we do that? And I think that uh, for all of you parents and carers uh, listening to this podcast, uh, there is a real question here, isn't it? That there's, there's not enough debate nationally about how much we are asking students to do, how many courses in that hot house, very short period in secondary schools where they're ending up doing sort of like twenty exams over, a, say, a four to five week period. There needs to be a discussion of this. Can I just say? To any parents here, you know, if your child is in kind of year eight, nine, or ten at the moment, and you're thinking, "Oh, looking ahead to this," you know, my child's going to go through this, is have the conversation with the school and say to them, you know, we recognise that because my my son or daughter has a, a diagnosis of a neurodevelopmental condition that could impact on their memory, and therefore putting them through for eight, nine, ten GCSEs in or what that period. Is that really the best thing for my son or daughter? And if the school says, well, we think professionally it is, then the next question to say is, well, how are you going to support their memory and the development of their memory over the the, the, the time that they're in school? Because what really concerns me when, when schools will say, well, they get extra time. And I said, "Well, great. That's a good strategy for an exam. But if you're not walking into the exam with the knowledge embedded into your long-term memory, what good's extra time going to do in that exam? You know, two and a half hours or whatever it is, um, with ADHD." We know that uh, ADHD, uh, one of the main causal causal factors of ADHD is something called dopaminergic dysregulation. And that means that dopamine is not transmitted and regulated around the brain as uh, consistently or effectively as it is for neurotypical people. Now, dopamine has a number of different uh, uh, functions in the brain, one of which is... Uh, focus and concentration. Another one is attentional regulation. So it means that youngsters who are neurodiverse, and autism is slightly different here in terms of the memory, but youngsters who have a range of neurodiverse conditions, for example, dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette syndrome, will all have uh, weaker memory uh, capacities than neurotypical people, uh, which means that they're going to struggle. Can I just say... Um, When you know your son or daughter better than anybody else, we have different types of memory. What works with your son or daughter? So, for example, what we do know is that visual processing can be very strong. Stronger than auditory processing. So, if you tell your child something and you want them to remember it, right, you've got less chance of that being successful than if you back that up, if you convert what you are talking about into some kind of uh, visual image. So, does your child remember pictures? Do they remember scenes? And I was just thinking when I was preparing for this, Camilla, I always remember this boy that I taught who had autism and ADHD. I'm really, really poor memory getting him to try and uh, talk about their previous lessons was a real real challenge and I was with him this one day and I was trying to ask him to remember the last lesson any of the content that I'd done with him and he said oh I was late to the lesson wasn't I so I had to sit at the rubbish computer that was in the corner away from everybody else and it smells so and, and that was the key That then I went right. So you remember where you were sat. You remember the smell. Sensory memory is is one one part of uh, one different feature of memory, and that was my starting point to then get him. I say, well, remember yourself. Picture yourself for me, sat in that rubbish computer in the smelly corner. What did you then do? And that was the beginning of the conversation. We have emotional memory, and remember, um, learning is a completely emotional experience. When young people say, that teacher hates me or I really like that teacher, it's the emotion and the connection and the relationship that will encourage them to remember. So young people who are neurodiverse and remember there is huge comorbidity you know some some researchers are talking at the moment around up to 80 percent of children with autism will have adhd as well this is the way the research is is moving at the moment is just think about you know what what how does my child remember what are they likely to remember and what they do remember is ask yourself the question always well They they get a lot thrown at them in schools, don't they? All day, five hours a day, all of that stuff coming at you. What has your child remembered? And ask yourself why. And one of the most strongest, most powerful ways of encouraging your child to remember is to connect what they know with the new stuff that you're trying, they're getting in school or you're trying to support them with. So if you're helping your child at home, to do a a revision for an exam for example coming up start big start by saying well we're looking at this tell me anything anything that you remember about this and and you make a note of that as the parent remind yourself this is where my child's starting from and build from that point i was reading i'll just finish with this camille i was reading this really interesting piece of research from finland recently that said if you tell a child with adhd One thing once in a lesson, they've got a 1% chance of remembering it. If you tell a child with ADHD the same thing 10 times in a lesson, one le- the same lesson, they've yeah. got a three to four percent chance of remembering it. If you tell them that same piece of information over and over and over again, space it out and revisit regularly, it's called uh, spaced retrieval. Um, they've got it rises; it increases to sixty to seventy percent chance that they will remember it. And remember, telling somebody something isn't the most powerful way to get them to remember.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Colin. All the time that uh, you were talking about that, I was thinking about uh, that uh, this this project I'm doing right now where I'm basically trying to uh, use this app to memorise all of the capitals and flags of every country in the world as well as it's located, including like Pacific Island nations and, and so on. And uh, uh, I don't mean to brag, but early th- uh, this morning, I used this app and I scored 230 out of 230, which uh, was mm-hmm. quite, uh, well, I would say unexpected, right. except I know from experience what methods uh, work for me and so while you were talking about uh, that lad who uh, was sat at the rubbish computer uh, I was thinking about uh, one thing I said said to a colleague once and the truth is we don't remember facts we remember experiences and I know right now that the capital of the Pitcairn Islands is called Adamstown now, the reason I know that is because while I was memorising it, I was watching an episode of Family Guy, and there was this particular joke, where I'm not going to repeat it on the podcast, but just that neurological connection between yes, oh yeah, I remember the moment that I learned the capital of the Pitcairn Islands was Adamstown because that was the moment when Peter Griffin said blah 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 blah. So, yeah, um, isn't that ju- uh, just the, uh, the art of teaching? It's not just throwing a fact at someone and hoping it'll stick. It's getting them to relate it to something that they already know or preferably have already experienced
1: absolutely chris and can
2: i can i just uh, just
1: add to what chris has said yeah, that i always think that you know the, the brain is wired to remember patterns and patterns of sound and so things like mnemonics or acronyms i used to do a lot of crazy sentences piece of information you take the first letter and make up a crazy sentence rhyme raps these are all things that you could do at home with your child but we remember you know think about yourself driving along piece of music comes on the car radio the opening bars you've not heard it for years and you're singing the lyrics 10 to 15 seconds later it's because we remember those uh, those patterns so you know I would if you really want to support your child in terms of preparing for exams then you can just whatever you're doing with your child driving them somewhere cooking somewhere watching the telly maybe uh, to, you know together it's just if you have if you have little bits of information that you group and you link just exactly what chris said and you just keep revisiting that with your son or daughter
0: but um so every every condition has its challenges you know so like adhd um children might find it hard to identify what they need to focus on dyslexia can cause reading writing and spelling um issues this means that some study techniques work better for some children uh, some conditions than others can you talk about some of these techniques that can be used? I know you've already spoken about a few, but um can we can we have a look at some other techniques that parents could use? Um I just want to talk about autism separately. So if we can just focus on like ADHD dyspraxia and and dyslexia, that'd be great.
1: Okay. Um I'm really, really keen and really interested that um people have as much knowledge and information about the different conditions as, as, as pos- they possibly can. And I'm sure the parents and carers listening to this podcast know all about what their, their child's been uh, diagnosed with. Um, but there's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot out there, oh, especially yeah. for teachers to get their head round. But it's important that we recognise that there are what we, what I call condition-specific strategies. But the overlap is immense. So if your child has dyslexia for example and you are um, you are reading with your child or you are writing uh, for example then hopefully they have had some uh, specialist support for their dyslexia in school. They might have learned some particular strategies about um, uh, r- recognising different words and, and the sounds that links to d- different letters and words. Um, I would encourage you, if they are getting that kind of intervention into school, is for you to find out as much as possible about it, because you could then be doing something contrary to that at home and confusing your child. So, you know, I think you have the right as a parent to, to know what that Intervention is that you that your child's getting, but the key message around uh, dyslexia, of course, where reading avoidance is is, is a massive issue, is to engage is to engage your child, is not to just start reading, say, come on, we've got to read this, this is what the teacher's asked us to do. No, start off by saying, you know, what is it about, what you know about it, break it down, read it together. Um, if you can manipulate the text in any way, if you can break it up, put, put um, b- um, boxes around it with different colours, if you've got pictures that go with it, or you could get pictures that go with it to Try to engage your child in that written text and remember, stop, break, have breaks, talk about it. What have you got from this so far? Working memory is a key difficulty for a lot of neurodiverse children and young people. So the more we can just keep capturing what's going on in their brains and externalising it as much as possible. If your child's got dyspraxia, then think about the physical coordination Requirements of what you are asking them to do. So if you have a workspace at home, you have a desk and a chair, where is it? Is it comfortable? You know, uh, does it have to be sat at a desk and a chair for your child? You might have coordination uh, issues. If your child has Tourette syndrome, if they've got motor tics, then they could get tired quite easily. That could obviously impact upon their ability to write successfully or even at a sustained way. So are you looking at technology? I know we're going to talk about this uh, a bit later, on camilla but the technology that's there uh, speech to text for example that would take away some of that coordination and, and physical exertion um, if you've got adhd if you've got a child with adhd their movement is absolutely key and i'm a bit obsessed at the moment with uh, attentional tools um for for youngsters with adhd because i'm fed up of People talking about fidget toys. I don't know what you feel. It really annoys me. We're giving the wrong message to children, aren't we? Here's a toy for you to play with this lesson. When I go into schools, I say to teachers, give them something to touch and manipulate. Okay, well, but only give it to them for certain activities. Okay, so, you know, if, if, if they've got to read something at length or they've got to watch something, Right, on a screen, or they've got to listen to you talk, give them it then. If you're doing something, you know, active and practical with them, take it away so that your, your child begins to learn that this is not a toy that I can just randomly play with at any point. This is a, a tool that I need at certain times. And also just ask yourself, you know, does my child have to sit in this position for the whole time? What, looking at this screen right, or working off this book, can they stand up your heart rate increases every time you stand up. So it'll get oxygen to the brain. It'll help the de- transmission of dopamine. How much movement can I put in? But can I just say, Camilla, uh, before I finish, mm-hmm. is that th- there, are those, there are those specific strategies, but there are... Overriding principles that apply to all neurodiverse conditions, including autism. And that's one of one of my big, big priorities. And what I say to teachers all the time is engagement is absolutely critical. That what as you as the parent and carer is working towards just getting your child interested in what it is that they are doing. You know, engagement will will support your child in so, so many ways. If they're struggling to read, if they've got a reason to read, and I'm not saying that you know it's going to make them great readers immediately, but they'll be having a go and they will be engaging in that reading. And talk, I can't say I always say to teachers, why why do you want quiet classrooms? Why do you want why do you not want them to talk for neurodiverse children and young people and they have difficulties holding information in working memory when we ask them to talk we ask them to externalize what they know and understand and they have to put it into an order and it helps them to understand it more so lots of visuals lots of engagement lots of talk
0: um anything to add chris
2: i found it very interesting when, Colin, you were talking about uh, the need to move, because uh, right next to me here, I have a 7 by 7 by 7 Rubik's Cube. And so, yeah, I would get annoyed if people called this a toy. It's a puzzle, it's a challenge, but it's not a toy. But at the same time, uh, regular Rubik's Cubes are the greatest, air quotes, fidget toys that mankind has ever uh, created, in uh, in my opinion. And it has to be said... Teaching maths to year 11s, I was very glad to be in a school that... Uh, I, I was openly autistic in this school. So when I was just there um, fiddling around with my Rubik's Cube while, uh, whilst teaching, I don't know, compound interest or something, everyone knew, oh, yeah, that's why it helps Chris focus while he's teaching. It wasn't, oh, yeah, well, I'm talking about maths, but the important thing is I'm playing with my Rubik's Cube. It, it, was, it was an aid for me, to remind the students. It was helping me. There was this one lad who struggled with engagements more than most of the uh the other students and as much as he would pretend it was lack of interest because well it's easier socially to pretend you're not interested than to admit you're struggling to uh, to engage o- occasionally just toss in the Rubik's scheme and say there you go have this in the answer a few minutes whilst listening to me talk about compound interest and it helped
0: yeah yeah so let's talk about autism um and i want to highlight some of the strengths autistic children and young people can have when it comes to revising such, such as absorbing and retaining facts and having more attention to detail but what are the challenges that autistic children and young people can face and the different techniques that they can use
2: often the biggest challenge about being autistic is the fact that most of the world isn't with a lot of autistic people this is uh not every autistic person experiences, I think it's my stepdaughter's experience, but uh, certainly my experience, the fact that uh, the biggest struggles that I've had in relation to my autism is the fact that I'm living in a world that has been built without autistic people in mind. When you think about primary schools, for example, primary schools are are loaded with uh, uh, bright colours across the walls because all children love bright colours and very, really noisy playgrounds because all children love making loud noises and uh, we've got a surprise for you this afternoon because all children love surprises no exceptions and yeah th- uh, this can suck if you've got uh, got either sensory differences or social differences or or if you are basically the kind of brain for which mainstream education was not designed for. And it's very similar with exams. How do we assess millions upon millions of people? Well, we come up with a framework that uh, meets the communication style of as many as possible. And if you're the 2% of students who uh, who are autistic, that can be uh, quite damaging, actually. I'm I'm thinking right now that this lad who I gave tuition to earlier this year uh, for his English because... A lot of autistic students struggle with um, English exams, not because of anything specifically reading and writing related, but because the questions are inaccessible. The person I'm thinking of went uh, went into the exam, and it was the Shakespeare exam. And the question was, Okay, here's an excerpt from Macbeth. Tell me why Macbeth was afraid. And this person, th- this very STEM-oriented uh, young person, expert in physics, math, sciences, on his reaction. Oh, also autistic and very anxious. Very first reaction was, wait, wait, wait my, my teacher didn't tell me that Macbeth was afraid. And how am I supposed to deduce that he's afraid from these these words written down? And he, he ended up freezing and uh, not writing anything down for the rest of the exam. Now, the exam system doesn't tend to accommodate that. It's It's quite brutal uh, towards people with anxiety in general, but people who freeze and will take the rest of the, um, (laughs) never mind the extra 25% time, uh, the rest of the exam to unfreeze themselves and try uh, try and get back into it. So this lad is going to have to retake an English exam. It's probably internalised the idea that he's not very good at English, but, well, I've tutored him, and, yes, he is rather good at English. It's just... He is trying to be assessed in a system that is assessing all these people with their kinds of brains, and he's kind of this. Well, I suppose we can, I suppose we can accommodate you on the side if we absolutely have to. Here, have some more uh, more time, as Colin said, regardless of a of whether learning it in the first place is easy. So yeah, th- uh, there's that. Anxiety and autism is a big thing. Is it's not autism awesome exclusive, but but. It is disproportionately relevant to autistic people. That, that's something I find quite interesting, really. When I when I give advice about uh, raising an autistic teenager, for example, a lot of the time we get the response, oh yeah, but that advice is good for teenagers in general. And well, yes, it is, because well, autistic teenagers are humans as well. But <clears throat> non-autistic people can be impacted by anxiety, they can be impacted by sensory issues and so on. But uh, they can be impacted by unemployment or so exam difficulties, but it is disproportionately amplified when it comes to the autistic experience. And honestly, not all of it is because of the autistic brain. It is about how the autistic brain is treated.
0: So how can we help them prepare for like questions such as what you mentioned, you know, um, you know, help them prepare for something that they're not going to expect to come up in an exam?
2: Well, English literature should, well, in some cases, it should almost fall under the modern foreign languages category. But uh, the sad truth is, if you want to pass an exam, I was taught this in year 11 by my graphic design teacher, and it's stuck with me ever since. In order to get the, I'm pretty sure he was autistic as well, it would not surprise me, but but his advice was, if you want to get good marks in exams, don't put down the correct answer. Put down the expected answer. So half of, I uh, uh, say half and half. Speaker's mathematician. It's not exactly half and half, but the colloquially speaking, half of it is about knowing your stuff, and the other half is knowing how to answer an exam questions, speaking the language of the exam. Like, uh, what, what is this question really asking? Again, there's an element of translation that goes into that, and. A part of that is recognising that those two things are in fact different things. The fact that being an absolute expert on Shakespeare does <laughs> not necessarily mean that you will be able to answer questions on paper about Shakespeare. And also another reason why it's important to highlight that those are two separate things is because if this lad I was talking about did not realise that, he would honestly think he knew nothing about uh, about English or English literature when clearly he does. I hope that he will be able to go into the resets, understanding that he is actually so much better than the exam results say uh, say he does now in, in terms of in terms of memorization techniques, it really is a personalized thing that that the internet is full of articles on how to memorize things for an exam or how to help your child memorize things for an exam but like the wider wide world in general they're generally written for non-autistic people so I'm going to use an analogy for uh, how I used to prepare for job interviews. I know that you are supposed to spend four days uh, preparing for uh, for a job interview kind of predicting all the questions coming up with scripts and answers etc etc etc. I found that my performance was a lot better when I spent one day preparing for uh, for the job interview because those extra three days, would very slightly improve my answers but i would perform better after one day of anxiety than four days of anxiety any extra advantage in answering the question and answering the interview questions those that extra time would give me would be cancelled out by the extra pressure and anxiety that i feel now i'm not saying this applies to exams that you should only spend one day rehearsing for exams that's not what i'm saying whatsoever (laughs) what i'm saying is Find ways that work for you, regardless of whether or not they work for everyone else. So, I used to get A1 sheets of paper and write basically everything down, and wallpaper the house with these A1 sheets of paper. And whenever I'd uh, uh, walk to the kitchen to get myself some chocolate, I'd walk past the uh, the history paper and then just casually read some of the stuff I've written down. The act of writing it down helped to solidify it in my head as well. But I would not go as far as to say, oh, every autistic person needs to write down A1 sheets of paper and, and stick them up. It, it really is a case of, I say trial and errors, more trial and improvement, and also recognising that the grown-ups don't always know best when they say this is how all teenagers should learn how to revise for exams.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's very personalised, isn't it, the way that you you re- revise to add, Colin? Uh,
1: yes, uh, I was just uh, completely agree with Chris around uh, the way that we are um, uh, assessing, uh, and the k- kinds of questions that we are we are asking on exam papers um, are really rooted in a neurotypical paradigm. If you happen to be a little bit. Um, uh, conceptual for for a second. Um, I was just thinking when when Chris was saying that that um, I used to when I was a teacher. I used to talk about the game, and that we have you know the, there's the learning as Chris said, and then then there's the game that has to be played to get the to get the marks in the exam and get the qualifications Um, and that I was thinking about a friend of mine who's bringing up her grandson who's got ADHD and autism and one very obvious technique in exams that all teachers say is do the big big number questions first and leave the little ones to last. Well, he was told this, uh, but he was told to do the big numbers first. Um, but they didn't really explain to him why why the reason was. So what he just had that literal understanding of what was said. So he did the big question. And then just sat there and didn't do anything else. <laughs> and when they said, well, why didn't you finish the exam? He said, well, you told me to do the big questions first. So that's what I did. But he didn't then complete. And I think that schools will be, as Chris said, will be teaching exam techniques okay but that needs uh, for children uh, who are autistic that needs to be laid out very very clearly i would say uh, as a set of rules to follow now this is predicated on the assumption that they're getting lots of practice so when chris says you know why was macbeth uh, what, was it macbeth yeah why was macbeth afraid you would imagine that that young person had been prepared for a question like that you know that the that somebody had done some work around uh supporting the development of an understanding of inference and subtext and theme in uh in in language and in reading and if they haven't then somebody's not done their job and prepared that young man for that exam. Can I recommend um, the National Autistic Society's website? They've got some good information on there around uh, inference in writing uh, that you might want to have a look at. Um, but I, I always used to approach it as a kind of a set of rules. There's some lovely writing strips that I started using and that, um, years ago where every piece of writing Uh, that your child was asked to do, particularly exam preparation. There'd be a strip, a coloured strip with different colours on the left-hand side with a bit of information, but also the size of the blocks in the strip was, right, if it's a four-mark question, Don't write any more than this. And I used to teach them, teach youngsters very, very explicitly that said, if the word is in the question, evaluate, analyse, compare, whatever it was, that word has to be in the first sentence of your answer. Now, some youngsters would obviously listen to me and they do, you know, and they do their own thing. And I could see that what they were doing was working. But for those youngsters that needed more support, those kind of very explicit rules were really helpful. And um, we've all heard of, uh, what is it, PEP or PIP, Point, Evaluate, Conclude, or whatever that that acronym is. Um, If a school is using that, you as a parent and carer need to know that as well so you can... Reinforce that at home with uh, with your son or daughter uh, as well. So I would agree with what what Chris has said and very very explicitly packaged tips and techniques for autistic youngsters within that context of these are the rules of this. You might not use the word game. You might use your activity or experience that you're going through. These are the rules to follow. And if they can be reinforced and repeated, then uh, hopefully encode it into long-term memory.
2: Yeah, what you're just saying, Colin, reminded me of, um, in terms of playing the game, I used to introduce my students to Betty from Preston. Now, Betty from Preston was the... uh, The person marking your exam paper. She has never heard of you. She doesn't really like you. She is not cheering for you. She is just very objectively putting marks against the places where she believes the marks are deserved. In fact, if you if you really want to put it on hard mode, let's pretend that Betty from Preston is looking for every excuse to not give you this mark. So with students who are reluctant to show their working or aren't really fo- focusing on whether uh, whether they're working out is written neatly or so on, whether they put numbers in, in a readable place in a readable fashion, I'm thinking oh, would Betty from Preston give you the mark for that? <laughs> it's it's not enough to know your stuff in your head it's persuading Betty from Preston that you know the stuff in your head and giving her no excuses at all to take those marks away from you which you deserve. So yeah that, that was um, uh, one thing that I uh, talked about in terms of playing the game
0: oh great um I just wanted to touch on um ADHD again and um the hyperactivity um aspect of it and um some parents struggle to get their child to sit down at home and revise so can we talk about some activity-based revision techniques
1: uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've already mentioned, of course, uh, access to attentional tools, uh, which I think it, it is a given. And does it does the uh, does the learning at home or the revision at home have to um, have to take place sat in facing one direction? Um, obviously, always think about peripheral distraction uh, with ADHD. Um, but. I mean, there's different levels to this, isn't there? You could, you know, uh, work with your son or daughter to uh, create a a revision schedule in the evening. You could say, well, we're going to, Do uh, this activity for this this period of time. And then we're going to get up and move. So we're going to have a movement break. Um, I'm a bit obsessed with movement breaks because often they're not movement breaks at all, they're just breaks. Um, So it's working with your son or daughter to say what helps you to focus and concentrate. And sometimes it might be a really short blast of very, very vigorous cardio exercise that gets them a little bit sweaty. So if you've got the space, if you've got an outside space, get them out and the weather's okay and get them moving or get them moving on the spot so you could do it that way where you have activity well you know sat down or or stood up uh to, you know reading talking revising whatever it is and then you could have uh structured movement in there as well if you've got any um equipment or resources at home any little gym equipment or a trampoline or whatever it is then and if your son or daughter relates to that then use that but what i'm also really interested in is movement-based learning so i think that your home becomes the whole classroom so information is on the walls uh, is stuck up and um, I used to put things high up I used to ask young people to jump on the spot and read things and that helped sometimes or crouch down and read things um, I used to do a lot of marketplaces where information is all over the place and you move and you find it and you make connections uh, with it a lovely activity um, I'm getting really interested in hexagon learning at the moment which is creating blocks of information in hexagons And then connecting them. You could have different pieces of information all over the room, because one of the issues with ADHD, of course, is always connectivity. I live in the moment, I experience in the moment, how does what I'm doing now connect with anything else and therefore we can really support your sons and daughters to do that bits of information that they go and find, they move to find and they bring together. Um, I was talking to a father um, last year who said that he revised with uh, beanbags, just throwing beanbags with his son back and forward and talking and asking there's a lovely technique called reciprocal questioning where you ask your son or daughter a question. And they have they answer or not, and then they have to answer back. Low stakes, of course, no pressure, no you're wrong, you know. There's no consequence, yeah. uh, but that could be done by moving, uh, by being active. Um, another um, another mother whose son was really into tennis, you know, she used to stand next to him while he was banging this tennis ball against the garage door over and over again, and she would be talking to him uh, then. So anything that either involves talk and a lot of movement structured movement breaks, attentional tools, or any activity that means that your child has to do something, fiddle with something, find something. Sorting cards, categorising, comparing and contrasting activities can be really, really good, along with lots and lots of talk. And just to say, uh, you know, um, one of the Best pieces of advice, and Camilla's heard me say this a thousand times, that for any parent of a of a youngster with ADHD is to get your child to be as active as possible. Do everything you can if your child doesn't want to engage in sports or exercise. Don't give up. Keep going. If they've got a lot of activity physical activity in their life that will help their brain. It will help their neurology generally. So if, you're, uh, if your son or daughter's doing a, a practice or playing a, a, a match uh, straight after school and then is coming home, you might think, well, that's the worst time to do any learning because they're going to be tired. Actually, that could be a time when your child's brain is at the best time for you to do a bit of like revision uh, with them as well. So I would say, you know, if you remember anything from this podcast, then that's one thing with youngsters with ADHD is just we must keep them moving. If, you're, if your son or daughter is sat uh, stationary, At a screen for long periods of time, then think I have to get them to move in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Um, Can we just talk about the support that's offered to neurodiverse children during exams? um, For example, extra time that we've touched on already and how schools and parents can help prepare their children so they have the knowledge of what they do um, get during during the exams, because I will quite a lot of them probably go in and they don't really realise.
2: I imagine a part of it very much goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of playing the game. If we're going to the effort to teach students specifically how to get specific marks with specific questions in the exams, we should also be teaching them about what support is, available. not just what support is available, but how do you best make use of that support. It's not enough Going back to the the obvious one of extra time, it's not just enough to say, "Oh, you have an extra twenty five percent of this uh, seventy five minute exam, so you get an extra nineteen ish minutes." It's not enough just saying, "Well done, you have some extra time." It's what? How do you strategically plan your answers to questions given the time that you have? And some of that is is personalised as well. So, yeah, it's not just about saying what supports are available and how to get those supports, even though, yes, it is extremely important that people do know that uh, what they're entitled to is how do you make best strategic use of them?
1: Yes, absolutely, Chris. I mean, I, I should imagine, well, I would be surprised, and I don't know if this has been your experience, Camilla, I would be surprised if if young people don't know what they're entitled to, uh, but also, and it's, it's fair enough saying but you're entitled to extra time or entitled to a movement break or you have a scribe um, or you have uh, somebody asking you questions, uh, it, you know, prompting you in exams. I, I think that, that there should be a degree of rehearsal uh, with young people before that happens. I think the person, for example, if they have got a prompt, they should have know who the prompt is. They should have had uh, a little bit of input um around what sort what is a prompt what sort of questions am I allowed to ask you in an exam so that you know going right back to the beginning of this when Chris was talking about anxiety if a young person isn't prepared for that and has got this adult who maybe they they don't know very well asking them questions they might then, get tongue tied around that that interaction which could take time out of actually doing uh, an exam also there could be a rehearsal if there is a scribe it's about you know how quick can I talk because I've um, I, I remember talking to a teaching assistant who was scribing for a for a girl in an exam once and the girl kept saying are you all right miss? Am I going too fast? Shall I wait till you finish talking? And the teaching assistant was like, well, I'm not allowed to say anything. But this girl was so more concerned about the teaching assistant than she was about getting the information out of their mouth. So that the teachers, so had she rehearsed with her, then the teaching assistant could say, I write really fast. I've done this for years, you know, just keep talking and I'll get it down uh, eventually. And um, so I think that there should be some rehearsal. I as I said before, I'm a you know I, I get really worried about movement breaks uh, because uh, I hear in lots of schools it means you walk down to the drinks machine or you just have a walk and you come back. There needs to be rehearsal if we're going to get kids really moving. They need to be ready for that. They need to be wearing the right clothes. They need to know what space that's going to happen in. Right, they're going to need a little bit of time to to calm maybe after that activity before they sit back down and carry on with the exam so yes absolutely I think that the youngsters and their families should know exactly what they're entitled to I think parents and carers should have all of that information so that they can make applications for any of those supports that they think their child is entitled to but there should be a degree of rehearsal it's 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 stressful enough that exam period right they should be rehearsed for every eventuality.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And say if a parent's worried that their child has a certain condition such as dyslexia, um, what should they do and how should they approach the school?
1: Well, I would uh, suggest, if I can just start with this one, Chris, yeah. if that's all right. Um, I'd I suggest, obviously, the first person to talk to is the senko. Um And try to, we always say to parents, try to keep that relationship as positive as possible. No, it doesn't help your child at all if relationships break down, as difficult as it might be um, at times. But I always say to parents as well, just remember your child's teacher or the senko is not a paediatrician and they're not a child psychiatrist. They cannot say whether or not your child is autistic or uh, has got adhd they might have and i i uh, as we both know camilla eh, amazing teachers and senkos who are incredibly knowledgeable um, and probably could uh, and do diagnose unofficially diagnose adhd and autism but technically they can't um, and this is particularly the case with uh young people who mask and suppress um and you know i'm uh, we talk about girls, but boys do this as well. And these are the youngsters who can get missed. I would encourage you, um, if you have concerns about your child, is to find out as much about the condition as you can, or a range of conditions, so that you go in to that meeting Armed with information, but also recognizing and saying to the teacher that youngsters can present very differently at home and at school. And any, any teacher with any experience should know this: that kids hold it together, lots of kids hold it together. They try really, really hard. They hide a lot all day in schools, or they try to, and then they go home and go into meltdown. So any teacher should be able to say, well, if you're experiencing this at home, something must be going on and then ask for a referral. So it's either for the school to support you to make a referral or it might have to go through the school, depending on where you live in the UK, to make a referral to a paediatrician in the case of autism or dyspraxia or ADHD or Tourette syndrome, or that they get an educational psychologist in. Um, and you know, for an assessment for dyslexia or a screening for dyscalculia or dysgraphia. But I would always I say to any parent listening to this, before you pay any money privately, I'd right, always ask the question, go to the school and say, if I get a private diagnosis or a private referral or a screening for this off this person, Will you accept it? I've known countless stories of parents paying a lot of money and the school saying, well, uh, justifiably in, in many cases, well, who is this person? And we don't know who they are. And they're saying this and we you know, we might question that. So always check out before you pay any money privately. But the first port of call is the school, mm-hmm. having that conversation with the school and then the referral to appropriate professionals uh, after that.
0: Great, thank you. Um so, going back to I know you touched on it before about uh, about technology that can be used to help with um exam preparation, and um we've been speaking to parents who've pointed out various systems that could be used um Are there any specific systems that you know of that are designed for neurodiverse children
1: um, <laughs> yes uh, absolutely um, it's so interesting isn't it what's happening in the last five years um, I always think that you know, as awful as the pandemic has been, and it's not over, all that we've been living through, through that. Um, uh, but one of the positives that came out of the pandemic was parents at home with their sons and daughters who were neurodiverse, and they were being asked to homeschool them. Mm and do this work that the school was sending. And so lots of parents started uh, experimenting or, interestingly, giving their sons and daughters the space and the time to experiment, because when does that happen, with what's out there. And, they've, and then I've had many stories of parents then saying to schools, right, this really worked for my son or daughter, this piece of software, why can't she, he or she have access to this in school? So it's opened up a whole new debate. What I think is worrying is uh, schools that are taking phones off youngsters now i worked in secondary schools i policed the use of mobile phones every day with teenagers and it was hard hard work and i get the challenges absolutely but we need to recognize don't we that many savvy neurodiverse teenagers their phone are significant executive functions on the end of their arm. right? They're using their phones as to make to-do lists, to remind us, to set timers, mind mapping. Um, I used to, when I was teaching, um, I was a drama teacher, I'd have uh, my, my 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds on the stage holding their phones because the lines were on the phone. They hadn't learned them yet right? and they could just refer. It was dead, dead easy. OK, so we need to embrace this um, some schools are, are using assistive technology brilliantly some schools not at all um, and what what is the issue that that is the thing is it, you know if your youngster is dyslexic then i would say uh, a very very good starting place is www.mycomputermyway.com right which is a website that is about how do i adapt my laptop or tablet to meet my needs. So fonts, filters, uh, different sizing, different use of colours. Always think about stripping the screen back from as much as possible. So uh, losing, you know, um, any windows that are open, any apps, anything that's gonna come in and distract the attention is stripping all that back as much as possible. But just go and have a Google of, you know, the term assistive technology, you could be there all day, you know, and as Chris was saying before about, um, about revision techniques, what technology is going to work for different youngsters is going to depend upon them we get asked a lot to endorse products and what we've found is some products there is an incredible amount of data entry before it starts to actually work and we're saying you know, a teenager with ADHD is unlikely to spend that amount of time putting all of that data in before they get any kind of feedback. So it's got to be things that, that work really well. But if you think about some of the executive functioning difficulties of neurodiversity, so time management, memory that we've been talking about in this podcast, anything that is about setting timers and reminders, anything where they can note take in a very, very visual format. um, Can I recommend just have a go on Google uh, and just type in um, graphic organizer or information organizer a lot of schools are calling knowledge organizers sorry a lot of schools are calling them these where they are sheets with lots of information on it in a very 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 uh very clear visual way um, and have a look at um, um, programs like that. There's some really good stuff around about writing at the moment. I don't know if you've seen some of the scanning pens. Not cheap, everyone. Uh, there's one called the Wiz- Wizcom Tech uh, pen that scans words and then reads it out, what that word means. It actually, you can upload written, text then so if you want to take notes out of a written text the pen will upload it uh, onto a file so it really really helps with um with uh sorry note taking and storing and organization and uh, there's another one called wonder list which is particularly good about setting to-do lists and uh with dates and then you get reminders and then your to-do list then is directly linked to pieces of work that you're doing. So have a look, not just at information for revision, but also assistive technology that would help with executive functions as well.
0: Yeah, great. Um, anything to add, Chris, to that? Anything that you've used? or? Um,
2: nothing other than to say that I was quite grateful just now to be listening to Colin, to, uh, to almost speaking against the demonisation of mobile phones. I think it's very valuable that we do acknowledge that these same mobile devices that can a- access rubbish TikTok videos and uh, all these things that adults found upon are also the devices that help a lot with executive uh, functioning and tell uh, basically take away a phone from an adult and see how much their work life suffers. I mean, uh, the more I talk to adults, uh, the more I come to realise exactly how much differently we treat young people in ways that actually aren't justified. I, mean, I was in a discussion yesterday about uh, how, how come teachers don't let their students go to the loo in the middle of the lessons, leaving aside the fact that there's a lot, to, uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion about feminine hygiene and if a teenage girl needs to go to the bathroom, you just let them go, no questions asked. Okay. Leaving aside all of that, Unless I'm in a position where I literally have responsibility over the people who are right in front of me, I can go to the loo whenever I want. So why is it different standards when it comes to young people? And I think that extends to, uh, to technology as well. The fact that us adults use phones very rarely for our work lives. So why are we demonising it for young people? And also, just to finish, guess how I know that the capital of the Pitcairn Islands is Adamstown? <laughs> because of an app on my phone (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) yeah um so finally to finish with um we like to finish on a quite positive note and i just want to talk about the five um your top five study tips for neurodiverse children and young people
2: okay so thankfully i knew this question was coming in advance so i actually do have the five tips right in front of me so first one make a timetable for revision, but also actually stick to it. I was an absolute expert at uh, planning and scheduling down to the finest detail, what I was going to revise and when. And then three days later, I'd just give up on it and then uh, design a whole new timetable for revision and so on. So yeah, find a a timetable design that works for you and one that you can actually stick to. And while I'm at it, remember to actually include breaks in that timetable as well to this day i'm pretty terrible at that but you do need breaks secondly uh we've talked a fair bit about about this already uh, during the course of this podcast but finding methods that work for you as an individual if plastering a1 pieces of paper with all of your exam notes around the house works for you then do that if something that absolutely would not make sense to my brain at all works for you then do that because it's your brain that it needs to make sense to. It's not my brain that your methods need to make sense uh, sense to. Thirdly, look after your physiology. If you if you make the mistake of trying to revise until two in the morning, thinking that more knowledge is going to settle in your head if you do, then don't be surprised if you've forgotten it the next day because you didn't sleep enough. On a similar note to looking after your physiology, number four, stay the hell away from energy drinks. <laughs> uh, I I was in university when energy drinks suddenly became a big thing. So obviously the student union was loaded with them. And I tried one once and, yeah, they tasted interesting. And so, uh, I'm aware, by the way, that the law has changed and you're not actually allowed to uh, have energy drinks until, is it 16 or 18? I actually can't remember. Yeah, but know. if for some reason you were to end up in possession of an energy drink anyway then my experience with them is that if they did improve my concentration it was only psychosomatic what that means is i was thinking i've had an energy drink this means i have more energy and that was it i, I might as well just drank ribena and told myself it was an energy drink and also well i'm not a doctor so i won't go into a lot of detail about uh, energy drinks and heart conditions but yeah the um If you really want energy, sleep more. Yeah. (laughs) And the last one, I'd like to share the immortal words of Professor Anvar Shikourov from Newcastle University, who once told us while I was there doing my mathematics degree, if you're in an exam and you're feeling stressed, just look out the window. Look at a bird or look at a tree or look at the sky or something. And remember how small and unimportant this exam is. I used to do that. And I was the professor of applied mathematics at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne, and he he did rather well. And yeah, I'm not going to uh, say oh, exams don't matter because well, obviously they do matter. But at the same time, it is not something that is worth sacrificing your mental health over, or sitting room thinking everything in life in the universe that matters is right here, right now. Because well. Honestly, no. One one of my former colleagues got her GCSE in maths a couple of years ago when she was 37. And uh, my godson's brother just finished college at the age of 32. I got my master's degree at um, 32, actually. So, yeah, resets are available. You can do stuff uh, later in life. And with that in mind, it is worth thinking to yourself in the middle of the exam, yeah, this is important, but there's a wide world out there, and I should not forget that wider world.
0: Great. Um, how about you, Colin? What are your top five tips?
1: Okay, uh, right. Um, so some of them, uh, Camilla, refer to things that I've talked about yeah. um, during this uh, podcast. I always think, um, you know, when I was a t- teacher, Uh, there's a couple of priorities, isn't there? If if you're teaching anybody anything, if you're a parent or carer wanting your child to learn, then one of the most important priorities is for you to show them that they can do it. Give them a sense of success uh, when you are working with them. We know that youngsters who are neurodiverse can tend to get a lot of negative adult attention, that self-esteem and mental health, all the things Chris has talked about, uh, can be uh, significant issues for youngsters who are neurodiverse they might have you know quite um um low uh, levels of expectations in terms of themselves you might be dealing with this so the first one is called go for engagement all the time try to get them interested Don't collude with your youngsters negativity. So don't go down that. Oh, I hated maths as well. I found it really difficult. Really avoid doing that. Um, Jump on anything that they know. Um, How do you know that they're engaged when they're asking questions, when they're making comments, particularly? uh, And really, really stress uh, that. Go for their interest primarily. Number two. Talk, talk, and more talk. Like I've said to you uh, already, the talking is a really good way that your youngster will will, um, will process and externalise their knowledge and understanding and their thinking. And then you, uh, as the adult, have your notebook everywhere in the house, have one in the living room, one in the kitchen, one in the bedroom. When your youngster starts talking about things, you start writing it down really quickly because they've remembered it, hold and capture what it is that they know and understand. Number three, We've mentioned it already. Movement is learning. Learning is movement. It's a physical activity as well as an intellectual, cognitive and emotional activity. It's also physical. So let's get movement in. Spaced retrieval, uh, like I mentioned before, which means, you know, don't say, well, we revised that now it's done. Keep going back, keep going back and back and back. Low stakes quizzing, I call it, where it's just you know simple quizzes without any winning or losing, without marks, anything like that. Just low stakes. Take the anxiety away from your child. Um, and the last one is uh, very similar to what Chris said, which is like recognising uh, your child's work-life balance. Um, I was in a college near Wigan a couple of months ago working with um, a group of, 17 18 year old youngsters all of whom had adhd and or autism and i was genuinely shocked at the level of perfectionism going on in there the level at the hours of which these youngsters were were working Uh, they didn't in some cases they didn't really know what was expected of them so they were guessing uh ripping up their work at midnight and starting again significant issues around work-life balance so what is your child into You know, one of the best things you can do for your son or daughter's mental health is to build their competencies in one area. There is something that your child is good at and they get a lot of self-esteem from. Work that with them. Make sure that they do that. Engage them through that activity. So look out for that work-life balance. And as Chris was saying, sleep diet, uh, interests, connection, good routines, morning and night time especially, and particularly in that run-up period, uh, what, from about February, March right through to june which is that exam period of your son or daughter's in that in a year group that's going to go through that next year and uh, my best wishes to you all it's a very very stressful time isn't it and it is to be a parent as well i know this from people that i know who've gone through particularly year 11 and year 13 exams with their sons and daughters and they've been living it with them uh, going through it so look after yourself as well as the parents and carer i love that phrase don't you Uh, you put your mask on before you put the mask on of anybody else that we're here on flights uh, and that's what you've got to do as the parents as well is look after yourself Mm. to best look after your son or daughter
0: yeah definitely so yeah that brings us to the end of today's podcast um i'd like to say a massive thank you to colin and chris for your time today and thank you my pleasure all our listeners for joining us and asking As Colin says, um, we wish all the children and young people currently studying for exams the best of luck. Thanks again.
1: Bye-bye
2: now. Bye.